Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summery. Hey everybody, this week we're talking about drug discovery, and there's a few pretty cool questions that we're answering on the podcast today. So how does a night at the pub give you an idea for the first ever AI drug discovery company? Can you code how humans perceive beauty and why is that important in an AI drug discovery company? Do you want the job title Drug Hunter for your CV? Well, this week I'm joined by Professor Andrew Hopkins, who is a leader in using AI in the hunt for medicines. And it's a bold claim, but one that he can back up and does back up on the episode that he actually invented the artificial intelligence approach to fix the very expensive, very slow, and very risky process of drug discovery, design, and development. So Andrew's company, Accentia, works with data scientists, chemists, and machine learning engineers, and they mine a huge amount of data to bring new insights into what diseases actually are, as well as how they can be treated with new approaches. And they're currently shortening the drug discovery process from about five years to about one year and obviously cutting the cost of drug development enormously, and that looks like about 30%, which, when you're dealing in costs of the hundreds of millions, is clearly extremely important. So before Accentia, Andrew spent 14 years at Pfizer, um, got frustrated with the slow pace of innovation, so went back to academia, founded Accentia as a spin-out from his lab in 2012, and since then, they've just gone from strength to strength. He talks interestingly about how they founded the company, the fact they bootstrapped and you know, we talk about the fact that it's pos- actually possible to bootstrap a drug development company, actually do deals, get a really good valuation, grow the company that way, pretty old school, but also pretty unique in drug discovery. And they've done a huge amount of deals. They've signed eight major pharma collaborations with the likes of Sanofi, GSK, etc. Estimated worth of over a billion in milestones and royalties, etc. So it's an awesome episode, really enjoyed it. I actually learned a heck of a lot about the drug discovery process, really kind of goes back to basics with Andrew. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And as always, you can get us on our socials in the description of this episode. Cool. So Andrew, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, James. How are you? Excellent. I'm very well, thank you. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Andrew? I'm speaking from our beautiful offices here in Oxford. Ah, Oxford, very nice. What's the weather like up there today? Today, uh, the weather's pretty overcast, raining. It's been one of really wet October. Quintessential British autumn, (laughs) right? (laughs) How wonderful to be here. You know, 24% of our listeners, I checked this morning, are based in the US. And most of those, well, actually, they're split between the West Coast and the East Coast, where I'm sure it is uh, far better than we're experiencing. But uh, I digress already. So, Andrew, as I said, welcome to the podcast. What we do to kick these off is we get you to tell your story to our listeners. So obviously, we've had a quick chat before, so I know a little bit about that background. But for the benefit of everybody listening, why don't you tell us your story? Excellent. Thanks, James. It's great to be here today. Um, so where shall I start off? Probably an interesting story is sort of what started off the company even 20 years ago or something, actually. So uh, I was studying for my DPhil in Oxford at the time. And it was a fascinating period because I was working on uh, drug resistance against HIV. And when I started my DPhil, where it was only really one drug available, AZT, and by the time I finished it four years later, we had the first sort of combination therapy drugs coming along and we we saw the possibility we could finally sort of uh, halt the uh, progression um, of a disease and, and put it in to almost a remission in a way. Wow. And so um, it was a fascinating, absolutely, it was a bore everyone senseless talking about HIV drug resistance <laughs> at the parties and, and pubs, but it, cause it was such a fascinating and exciting time to, to be in science. And I, I still think that's one of the, one of the greatest achievements of, a, of a sort of the pharmaceutical industry. I was going to say, that, that's an incredible thing to, to see close up, right? The, it was the movement from AZT all the way to combo. You know, is, uh, but even that, I was doing, uh, I was working with an incredible guy called uh, Professor Dave Stewart, who uh, we used to have meetings, um, all our lab, st- lab meetings were usually at midnight after the <laughs> and no one left the lab till about 3 a.m. or something. But um, we were doing structure-based drug design, uh, crystallography, and I, had, I really got into uh, computational approaches when I was doing theoretical chemistry, when I was uh, studying for my undergrad back up in, uh, in Manchester. 
then lucky enough then for my uh, doctorate to move down to, to Oxford. But I remember walking home at about 2 a.m. probably, one autumn, um, very early in the morning, moonlit sky down sort of past Mansfield College from, down from the lab. And I remember this whole idea coming together in my head, how, you know, why is drug discovery so expensive? Why don't, you know, can't we approach it in a way where effectively, you know, a student could be able to design a drug and move it forward? And it really caught me. And I remember to that day, that exact moment when I, I sort of had that epiphany about this is what we should be doing. That's incredible. And it really led, you know, all of a career I've done since at Pfizer, at University of Dundee, at Accenture, et cetera has very much been driven by that sort of single idea. And I remember it very clearly when I, when I first had it. What do you think it, it was, was about that walk at that time? What had you been doing like that week, that month? What kind of brought it all together, do you think? Uh, well, probably the excess beer. When, <laughs> uh, in but it was... Uh, it was you disinhibited sort of, to the point of genius. Absolutely, yes. But it was, uh, <laughs> I think it was the environment we were in. You know, we could see the excitement of the science. We could see... These are very early days of sort of structure-based drug design where it was basically like molecular architecture uh, in a way. And you could then start to think, you know, the computers we were using now, you know, my, my iPhone would outpower them probably a thousand times, you know. <laughs> but, um, but we could start to see then like, you know, this is great. We've got this huge new set of information, new insights, but actually we, this needs to go to the next level. You know, and in these days, even the internet, those days, even the internet was only just starting. So... You could start to imagine out what the future would start to look like. And as, um, I think it was that combination of realizing that um, you know, there are so many problems that need to be solved, so many new urgent uses for medicines, that we do need to reduce the, of, um, the economic barriers to making things happen you know, and allow ultimately you know, creativity to, to flow by giving people the tools to do so. And it very much, many of the things I did, and I'll, I'll chat about later perhaps, uh, all were sort of inf influenced by that sort of single idea. And so I've been very much like a, like a hedgehog in some things, you know, stuck to a single idea for a long time, hoping that, um, you know, we can finally make this happen. I believe now, now we have actually. That's amazing. So I guess let's tell this chronologically then. So you have, <laughs> you have that idea at half one in the morning after 10 pints. And what do you, what do you do next? Well, it was actually after a sort of a hard day in the lab, actually. We used to finish about that time. So it's, <laughs> but, so we, we, we thought about it is uh, I was really taken by the drug discovery bug, actually, after, you know, working with Glaxo Welcome, as it was at the time, during my... Uh, during so my, you were working, this wasn't like... No, no, this student was, uh, or a lecture no, we were, or anything we were like lucky that. enough to collaborate with companies, you know. Okay, while, nice. Um, which was good, because that's where most... And I realized then, if you really want to do drug discovery and... You had to really go work in, uh, in those days, one of the big pharma companies to do it. And it mm. actually felt like in a, getting a, again, it's almost like a job for life. Uh, those don't exist anymore. But in, in those days, even 20 years ago, there was a possibility that I was offered a lectureship and I was offered, you know, a job at Pfizer. And getting mm. a job at Pfizer was like getting tenure, you know. <laughs> yeah. And the pay was almost double. And, um, you know, no one ever sort of got fired or left. And it was a, it was a good research environment those days have long gone. But um, it was interesting. So as soon as I got there and I saw how Big Pharma was working, it, uh, I, saw an, I saw another analogy, actually, from an earlier stage of my life. So I've, um, uh, prior to going to Oxford, I actually worked um, in Petalbert Steelworks as a, as a research chemist. And so uh, actually, when I first turned up to Oxford on my donkey jacket from a steelworks, I was quite a culture. <laughs> but, uh, but what I learned from that um, was um, in, in Petalbert all through the 80s as I was growing up, you know, for a minor strike and things like that. And, and uh, I grew up in a town called Neef in South Wales, which is ne next door to Petalbert. And once you're in that, a big steel town like that, during the 80s and all through to the 90s, you know, there was nearly up to 30,000 people involved in the employment of a, of a plant like that. You know, almost the entire town was employed by it. Mm. And then there was an introduction of uh, new technology, new ways of working, new productiv productivity methods. And in fact, productivity went up 20-fold. But the, the downside, of course, was uh, you know, the, the, the plant went from employing about 30,000 people down to about 3,000 people. Of course, And yeah. yet the output doubled. So, uh, so for me then, this realized that uh, you know, the winds of change can blow and the whole industry can be restructured you know, mm. uh, the creative destruction of, of capitalism. That's and, a good thing um, to learn early, right? Absolutely. I learned that early, actually, of what you can never rely and think of. 
And one thing I realized quite early on is that, you know, Big Pharma had never really had the Darwinian pressure sort of put on it. And it yeah. was very good money. It was uh, pumping nearly 20% back into research. You know, it was having blockbuster drugs being launched, et cetera. And, um, and in, but in many ways, there wasn't the sort of the economic pressure that I saw necessarily in other industries. And um, I, had a, I had a wonderful career at Pfizer and I had a, the opportunity to do many exciting and very interesting things. What was your, what was your role at, at Pfizer? What was your title? Uh, it's uh, obviously changed uh, as my career grew. I went in first as a sort of molecular modeler, following doing things. Oh, like molecular what modeler. <laughs> what I did uh, to my, uh, in my PhD in a way, so I did, you know, doing computational sort of drug design. But within a year, I was doing something else. So a friend of mine called Colin Groom and I set up uh, a new group called Target Analysis. And this was a fascinating uh, little group. We were like an internal consultancy. Yeah. And what it allowed us to do then is that we got to see the entire portfolio. So we, we managed to like, you know, work on nearly every project in terms of thinking about how you would approach it, you know, whatever, uh, doing all the bioinformatics, thinking about selectivity, how would you design a drug, looking at the, and, and we'd write these reports about the strategy one could take to, to tackle this particular target or something. And the exciting thing about that, within about a year or so, you know, we'd, we'd gone through the entire uh, portfolio and then you started to see, really interesting patterns, you know, between projects, what common issues were, et cetera. And that actually led with, uh, with, with a guy girl, uh, who became a, you know, real sort of mentor of Michael, John Overton, who, um, who eventually went on to form Kemble and currently works at the Catalyst Center up in Manchester. Um, but he was, um, you know, we had a fantastic time brainstorming, actually. A lot of the ideas that we uh, yeah, we're still working on actually was sort of uh, were created and sort of brainstorming in his office back in those days. And what we found actually is that we started to then see insights into how projects, you know, were failing, what was, but also more importantly, how we could use all the nascent genome information that was starting to emerge, of course, you know, this is around the year 2000. And, um, you know, the thing I'm kicking myself for was um, at the time there was like a lottery going on of predicting the number of genes in the human genome <laughs> and uh the company like was, you know signing deals all these companies like Seller <laughs> and others and, you know insight and who are all predicting a hundred thousand genes and paying you know 60 million 100 million bucks for these sort of collaborations yeah and then you write an internal memo saying actually i've done a done a calculation internally and i predict there's only going to be between 21 and 24,000 genes <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh why we paid all this money for it etc you know uh, which didn't go down too well. Uh, but it turns out that that estimate was absolutely spot on and it kicked myself I didn't participate. In <laughs> uh, You've got good odds on that, time. I think. I've still got a piece of paper with that number written on it. Have you really? Uh, Amazing. But, um, but it allowed us then to realize there was a huge amount of emerging information now, you know, from mm. genomes. Uh, and then we, we, we then started to work in the area of thinking about how we can predict, you know, which projects are going to be successful. That led us to invent a concept called druggability, which really sort of took off. It was led to an incredibly highly cited paper called the Druggable Genomes, got over nearly 3,000 citations now or something. Wow. But it sort of then influenced in thinking about the relationship and the data relationships between protein, structure, chemistry. And that interface then became something which I found very fertile for the next few years. So uh, in doing so then, we managed then to... Um, uh, realize that there's a whole new playing field of creativity if you could start to then exploit information and the wealth so we then started to think about sort of informatics systems and informatics approaches that allow us to then how would you start to um you know create new ip create new drugs you know just by mining data and we were it was lucky then in, in pfizer it, it was enough sort of leeway in the company then for me to come up with crazy ideas and to get them funded and um we set up a, um, I set up a, a group called Indications Discovery, basically drug repurposing. I think we were one of the very first groups in the world, actually, to use computational methods to do drug repurposing, building up large matrices. We would now call them uh, knowledge graphs, actually, and uh, we were using ontologies at the time. Ontologies were very big back in the early of, um, uh, start of the millennium. And, uh, but what it allowed us to do then was to really think about how to mine all of the different entities, proteins, diseases, chemicals, et cetera, you know, from the literature. And you could put together, you know, basically a define every hypothesis. You know, in fact, 
there's already a limited number of hypotheses to, to go after when thinking about new medicines potentially. If, it's, if you want to design a drug that's going to hit target X to treat a disease Y, then we know that there's you know, 21,000 genes in the human genome expressing proteins. You know, say there's effectively 6,000 diseases known to man. And you've got a matrix of about 126 million possible hypotheses, you know, following that. You know, I've, I've never heard it explained like that before. And <laughs> finally, dr- drug discovery makes sense to me. So I'm merely a medical doctor. I'm not a PhD of, of anything in, in deep science or technology. So I've got a really kind of, I guess, the, the close to patients view and, and, you know, my, my relationship with medications is, is to, it was to prescribe them. Right. And I just see the effect, but it was all kind of a black box for me as to, you know, how these hypotheses become created. But you said something interesting there, which was that it sounds like you were just really inquisitive, right. And you were just really inquisitive about the relationship, as you said, between proteins, chemicals and chemistry, Right. And then obviously the, the, the human genome as well. And, and as you say, with only a fixed amount of variables, you can figure out that there are X amount of combinations. And then it's just about about you finding them, which is you, you know, mining all that data and then exploring those hypotheses. Have I kind of got that right? You have indeed. <laughs> Don't so hold me too, this, too much to account. Absolutely. So this is what I think the sequencing of a human genome had. It, it actually allowed us as a mental framework to think very differently about yeah. it. It's quantifiable start- now, right? I mean, that's the, that's the difference. It- Absolutely. And it wasn't just even the sequences themselves, actually. The important thing was actually, we now started to define numbers. We started to see this became a sort of maybe a bounded universe. And we could then start to think of strategies, how we might start to explore that universe, <laughs> yeah. see, it, see it in its entirety. And so that then, and I think that was, it's like when, um, you know, first astronauts who went to the moon first saw the picture of the Earth looking very blue. Looking back, yeah. Sky, you know, and it changed our perception of um, mankind's perception. Yeah. Of what about planet Earth? And in fact, it was a great um, uh, spur to the emerging environmental movement at the time. Yeah. And I think in many senses, the sequencing of a human genome, what allowed us to do then was, was not just the list of DNA and, and the, the list of proteins that we can uh, um, uh, then transcribe from that, um, it was actually uh, the approach of thinking about we can define this much more in terms of sort of an informatics problem. We can define yeah. this more in, in creating a sort of a bounded universe to a degree. And we can think about how we start to, you know, mathematically and computationally start to think about mining in this space. So that was a mindset that they put into us. And we thought of many useful things that came from, because once we then started building systems to then mine for these hypotheses, looking for evidence, you know, that would link, you know, could, you know, is there a link between CCR5 and rheumatoid arthritis, or is there a link between, you know, a VAT again, for, and uh, say, you know, atherosclerosis, you know, and all of a sudden then you start to create hypotheses which allowed us then to go into the clinic with, you know, could this potential uh, new drug we're developing for HIV be used for some of these other diseases, for example, you know, and then get evidence for that. So we managed to then set up, you know, this is exciting. So we have a small group, about 12 people in our group, uh, interdisciplinary team. And we had the clinician, we had computer scientists and, you know, um, uh, you know, and some biologists. And what it allowed us to do then is that we started then, you know, managed to get, you know, a few sort of phase two trials and have a large scale uh, data collection done on patients. And all of a sudden you're thinking, wow, we've run in a trial. You know? <laughs> and this is, a, this is a small team and we started to generate patterns. That's amazing. And, and that's, and that's get... essentially, so if I've got that right, that's, that's you essentially using informatics methods to, to, to kind of find new uses for drugs that already exist. Right? Absolutely. And back in the time, you know, back in the early 20th huh. century, this was a relatively novel idea. Particularly, and then we managed to, you know, systematize it and to implement it. And Eventually, Pfizer set up a whole big unit in St. Louis called Indications Discovery to, uh, to, to follow this through, et cetera. And of course, now it's a, it's a very well-trodden business strategy for many yeah. AI startups out there. Um, and the reason I sort of moved out of the area, and it's, it's still got you know, great potential use, et cetera, because you're dealing with compounds which have been potentially proven to be you know, relatively safe in humans. You're looking for new uses. But it also got me realize the limitations of that strategy. And the limitations are, at the end of the day, a drug ultimately is a, is a precision engineered piece of technology. 
you know, there's almost an infinite mm. number of possible designs which we could have taken of the arrangement of atoms uh, hmm. that is required in a particular molecule. So many decisions, so many paths not taken. But yet the, we choose a particular arrangement of, of atoms because we believe that, and the evidence from our experiments, that that particular compound has the right you know, potency against the target, the right efficacy, yeah. it has the right ability to survive metabolism for the right amount of time to have an effect in the right tissue, et cetera. And there's all of these effects, you know, and any one of those criteria, which is not quite right, uh, limits the possibility. And the trouble is then a lot of these, a lot of drugs are, you know, engineered precisely for a particular indication, uh, for particular exposure, et cetera. And sometimes even if that molecular ta protein target is, you know, linked to a never disease, it might be that actually you require very different exposure, very di targeting a very different tissue, et cetera. And the compounds are not necessarily always, you know, uh, designed for that new purpose. Yeah. So it, got, it got me then into um, really thinking about the next problem to try to solve using computational approaches, which is, well, you know, how would we design <laughs> new drugs? Yeah. And that's you then delving into the infinite number of combinations of setups of atoms to then design, yeah, the, the perfect drug for a perfect situation, right? So what, yeah, how, how do you go about that then? Well, excellent question, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell my sort of naivety just even in the question. I, yes, I, for me, it just sort of turns up if I write it on a drug chart, it just all of a sudden just, <laughs> just turns up and yes, gets exactly, either yeah. injected or, so you know, that, whatever. I'll summarize many years of research, but, you know, the almost infinite variety of uh, uh, choices that one could uh, potentially. Yeah. And in fact, uh, there's, there's a very interesting systems think, thinker called Akoff who uh, has this phrase that uh, knowledge is the efficiency of choice. And the interesting thing about oh, so that's that is a good that, phrase. And what we're trying to do here is to understand that the more knowledge we have or the more knowledge we can gain, the more efficient then our choices are in design of the shortest path between, you know, our starting point or an idea to the end product we want to create. So that's yeah. effectively that simple phrase effectively sums down everything that we've been trying to do over the past few years, you know, which is why Accentio is called Accentio because it means from knowledge. Um, so what we're trying to do then is to think about it in terms of how then, given almost the infinite possibilities what we could design, would we pick the right pathways and the right set of decisions that reduces it down so that we can make fewer decisions, therefore have a shorter pathway in optimizing a you know, potential hit molecule compound that has the first possible um, uh, hints of activity to the end product that will be the, you know, the precision engineering mm. medicine that we want to take forward into human clinical trials. So, uh, um, and in fact, when we started this work, we, um, we found that uh, it was a much, much bigger undertaking than thinking about sort of drug repurposing. And the reason being, when we started it, actually, we did not have the data, we didn't have the models and we didn't have the algorithms in place. And in fact, the, <laughs> The next few years was all about what a starting point that is. <laughs> how do you then begin to build this? So the first thing we needed to do was, was actually, how do you get the data? So yeah. um, you need machine readable format data. And the key to this actually was um, most big pharma companies, all of them have, you know, repositories of data from all their previous projects they've run, et cetera, sometimes millions of data points stored internally. But they're often designed as uh, almost as data tombs. You know, data is put in, maybe used in that project, but not necessarily reused and, and learned from at the time very much, actually. And actually, my, my, uh, my friend John Oventon, when he went to uh, uh, work with a company called Informatica after leaving Pfizer with, an, with another friend of mine called Mark Swindells, what they uh, started to do then is that we were always having these dialogues, these, these discussions, is that we thought, well, actually, one way we could tackle this would be uh, they thought, why don't we take all of, the, all of the published literature, such as journals, such as Journal of Medicinal Chemistry, et cetera, and why don't we transcribe, you know, the data that's written there in the PDFs and in the journal, paper journals, mm. into actual database tables, you know, and therefore we can then start to link the proteins and the sequences to the chemistry and the chemical structures. 
And this was a huge undertaking. And uh, they managed sounds to work, enormous, yeah. I think they got a big team in India and they were sort of curating all of these stories. And it was like, you know, thousands and thousands of journal articles. Goodness, so that, that was manual done by That humans. was done manually at the time and they managed to do it. But it was a great vision. And Goodness, like, what it man. led to then was having sort of the first time where, um, you know, at least then we had a machine readable version of the, of, um, the published literature. And, yeah. Uh, of thousands and thousands of projects. And then we, uh, I then built a new team um, after Indication Discovery called Knowledge Discovery, where, and it was a, it was a really small team. You know, uh, actually it was my, myself and a, uh, another colleague called Gaia Paulini. And uh, sometimes it's great to work in big teams and sometimes you need to work in small teams if you want to be really creative. And uh, together, um, and Guy used to work at IBM, was a fantastic computer scientist. And we managed then to have um, pulled together um, and extracted all of Pfizer's data, managed to build sort of ontology index data marts and everything, linking basically proteins and chemistry all together and diseases, et cetera, all sorts of different domains. And uh, we then were able then to finally pull together and see for the first time how all of Pfizer's data related, you know. Mm. Um, and then we managed to then work with, uh, uh, with John and, and, and Martin Models to then bring together uh, the Informatica data, which is then called Starlight. And we integrated everything together. So for the first time then, we could really see, you know, everything Pfizer had been working on, everything the outside world had been working on, and actually started to see the first time, like, you know, built in huge networks of how all these different protein targets are related by the shared chemistry they have, how compounds often hit many targets, you know, not just the one you screen in, but they've been seen many times in many other assays and have his promiscuous side effects, which often mm. cause a lot of downside and sometimes cause really positive effects. You know, it's why many, I believe, psychiatric medicines are, are efficacious and many cancer medicines. So, um, so what we started to see then, if we finally had the data where we could get new insights, integrate it all together, and then working with uh, another uh, friend and colleague of mine, Willem van Horn, who later on joined us at, at um, at Accentia, managed to then, you know, bring things like uh, Bayesian uh, machine learning into, into play and, you know, published one of the very early sort of papers of applying uh, Bayesian machine learning methods um, onto such large data sets. Such yeah. As and for we then started to have the data and then we started to build the first machine learning methods. And we were, we were lucky enough to, to publish this in a great paper we did in uh, Nature Biotechnology back in the day. And it allowed oh, nice. us to, for the first time to see sort of this global mapping of pharmacological space. So, so um, this is a time. I'm, in, I'm intrigued here, Andrew. So when you're building that database, it sounds like a very logical thing to do, right? It's, it sounds like a very, now that you've explained your journey, sort of like the next step, like quite clearly a good thing and a good idea to do. At the time that you were doing this, and I'm intrigued as to what year this was roughly, but who well, else? 2006 was 2006. So who else was doing that at the same time as you? Were you guys head and shoulders above everybody else ahead of them in, in time? Were you ahead of them in idea? I mean, wh where was your defensibility in doing this? Well, uh, we were, yeah, absolutely ahead of a field in, in, in doing this. And... Um, I later went to a conference I was invited to at Novartis where they'd, uh, they built their own internal data system several years later mm. uh, after reading our Nature Biotech paper, I was told. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, what are Pfizer's doing? What was doing? Um, so we, so would, we you, went, would you happily call yourself the first drug discovery company? I would say we are the first AI drug drug discovery. Sure. No doubt about that. I think, um, I think of the timestamps when the company was incorporated, when we first published our seminal papers all, all point to that. Yes, absolutely. And, but for us, I've got the, uh, the, the, the title of this podcast nailed down been, in that case then. Exactly. It's been part <laughs> of a, part of a much longer journey, actually, you know, I, I would say it goes back a long time and it wasn't yeah. because this is a, this is a hot trendy area to be in now. It's something it is, that, yeah. we're in the area far before it was trendy because, uh, because we believe in it. We believe that this is a way, you know, drugs should be discovered if we want to make Amazing. it more effective. So you've got so, your database, you put your, you put your machine learning forecasting on it and you start to do that yeah. sort so then, of stuff. Then we, then we took a straight change of tack and then uh, this is about okay. time. It was, you know, hints that started to think about what's going to happen to the Pfizer in particular when, you know, Lipitor goes off pattern and things like that. And I then started to, um, 
to think about actually uh, long term. And uh, I was very lucky to work with a, some some great people inside Pfizer about how you know the changes we should make to the company, etc. And you know with the, with these big sort of challenges facing ahead. But uh, also, given my previous experience in the steel industry, also realized that sometimes <laughs> it's best to uh, to uh, you know make those changes rather than have them thrust upon you. Interesting. And, um, and I was being courted at the time. Uh, I started some wonderful discussions with Tom Blundell at Cambridge and then Mike Ferguson up at Dundee, who, um, who, who managed then to convince me to, uh, to move to academia. And so at uh, the end of 2007 then, I, I was uh, very fortunate enough then to be made a full professor, still quite a young age actually, to, uh, at the University of Dundee with Mike Ferguson, who was, uh, who was one of the governors of the Wellcome Trust. And so um, I was offered a great opportunity. So I realized that we wanted to then build the next level, which would be the algorithms and how then we're going to think about automating drug discovery. Mm. It wasn't something necessarily I could do inside uh, a big company like uh, inside Big Pharma. It was something that required really some more long-term uh, thinking and actually the, of, um, uh, so that's when, uh, moving to academia then provided us ultimately with uh, you know a long sabbatical to then get to work into thinking about how ultimately are we going to automate drug design and mm. um, so I was very fortunate uh, in my time at Pfizer I met a very uh, very talented young intern called Jeremy Besnard and I remember when I first started at Dundee uh, there was two people I wanted to get up there one of them was my girlfriend at the time Ava <laughs> Navratilova who later became my wife Nice. And uh, she, she, she was developing a great career inside Pfizer where we met. So I managed to convince her to come join me up in the wilds of Scotland. And also this young intern, Jeremy Besnard, uh, who'd just gone back to France to finish his, uh, his degree and uh, managed to convince him to come to, come to Dundee with a, a bottle of white burgundy and a good, a good meal at a local <laughs> French restaurant. And, uh, and Jeremy, with a small team then, we managed to pull together. And then, and then soon after, also stole from Tom Blundell, one of his great uh, uh, students called Richard Brickerton. And then a small group then, we managed to then start to then plan out how then we would start to automate drug design. And this was a very interesting sort of thought process uh, we went through in thinking about how to approach the problem. So what we want to do really is to, is to mimic creativity. And... One of the things I think which we've now, you know, really have inside Accentia, and I, what really excites me about it, is that some of the problems we're facing, I believe, are the cutting edge of how we should think about AI. So we were interested in creative AI, how AI would create new things like uh, new IP, new patents, new molecules, etc. We even mm. we're basically trying to use algorithms to invent. And also within that later on, we'll come to, we're interested in, in, in more difficult challenges, like how do you invent from very small amount of data? So of, um, when we started approaching this actually, uh, so I was thinking very carefully about what we were trying to do here actually. And in many ways, what I wanted to do ultimately was have a system that would perform like a drug designer, be able to look at a problem, be able to generate hypotheses, invent chemicals, select the best ones to make and have a very good probability that the compounds that decided to make would be active, you know, mm. and hopefully activate uh, knowing this activity, not just against one protein, but against huge numbers potentially, because we, um, when we're designing a drug, we need to consider not just how a protein is going to act against a, how a drug is going to act against a one protein of interest, but against 21,000 other potential uh, proteins being expressed or so <laughs> of course, uh, yeah. uh, in a proteome because of the side effects. Side effects yeah. So, um, so we need to think about how we, you know, design in, mul in N dimensions, multiple dimensions. So what it's got it down to is to think about how we'd mimic creativity. And that was a challenge we then set ourselves. And the way we approached it then, I was very inspired by uh, actually some of the interesting work uh, that has been done by various psychologists and, and philosophers, et cetera, and actually computer scientists about how, you know, there's, a, there's some very interesting analogous uh, um, patterns and behaviors between how sort of human creativity works and our ability to generate lots of alternatives of a problem, how we use, you know, our definitions of beauty or something as, a, as almost as a filter <laughs> to pick the best ones and et cetera. So this idea of sort of a convergent, divergent phase of generating idea and as a convergent phase of selecting the best ideas 
has some very strong analogies to evolutionary approaches and evolution. Yeah. You know, how do we generate ideas? How do we use models of selection pressure, et cetera, to, to drive us forward? And how do we improve on that generation after generation in an iterative fashion? So this led us then to thinking of that back in, uh, this, this is probably around sort of back in 2010 when we were really sort of developing these, these techniques, is how then uh, one would um, then design sort of evolutionary computing approaches to try to then mimic the, of, um, um, uh, the, the human drug designer. It sounds incredible. I mean, what I love about that, particularly that part, is that whilst you're doing something so scientific and based in so much logic, you talk about how the influence of, you know, the psychologists, the philosophers, the computer scientists, you know, hugely different fields there, how that basically leads you into learning about the perception of beauty in terms of how it relates to evolution and all of that then comes back to trying to essentially as you say mimic creativity because you're trying to create something that is essentially human and in order to do that it can't just be logic based it can't just be i guess a a standard mathematical formula with nothing else thought about as you say it's got to include so much more about being human in order to be creative so it has to be artistic as well i just find that really fascinating it is and the irony is that those things which you might consider to be you know creative actually can be reduced down yeah i was gonna i was gonna yeah so i was gonna (laughs) i was gonna ask you about that then because yeah you're you're then picking out these different elements And then you're decoding, I suppose, in inverted commas, how almost the human brain is going to approach that problem, which I suppose you can then actually quantify in zeros and ones. Absolutely. So we, we, in fact, uh, in fact, we've we've thought about a concept of beauty a lot. And we've even published a paper on the concept of a chemical beauty. And the reason being is that when we uh, when we were sort of thinking about, you know, the drug designer, there was a lot of subjective human sort of uh, approaches people took to the job. So chemists would often look at, um, uh, you know, at a compound and, and, you know, like it to be attractive, et cetera. So I was asking the question, you know, what is it? What, why are they, you know, what's the Bayesian model they've built in their head that makes them realize yeah. that they prefer this compound over that compound? And in fact, we, um, Richard Brickerton in, in my group, uh, built this in, in a system where he could then, uh, from preferences, uh, a bit like when Mark Zuckerberg was developing a uh, sort of face smash, you know, when he was in his Harvard dorm, <laughs> that with compounds and uh, we should call it chem smash. But it allowed us then to, uh, we could actually use that data of preferences and we could actually then build machine learning models and we could take our sort of, uh, we could take our, our head of research, Andy Bell, and Andy's an, an amazing chemist to learn drug discovery off. I met him 20 years ago, my first week at Pfizer um his you know his claim to fame he's he's helped bring two drugs to market uh you know he's the uh, he's, the, he's the co-inventor of uh first name on a pattern on sildenafil otherwise known as viagra oh very nice get us a, a lot of people uh want to thank that guy <laughs> and we could almost take andy's concept as a very hugely seasoned successful drug hunter and we could almost sort of encode his preferences as a model you know that's so and interesting that with groups and we could then look at groups of people and say these groups of chemists, you know, they all have the same set of preferences because they've all been brought up in a certain company way, et cetera. This other group are different, et cetera. So um, you could, you could then realize that what we consider to be a human preferences actually is an encode, it can be encoded as a model, you know, oh, brilliant. Um, and then and also then we realized then, yes, the concept of what people consider be- beautiful uh, was actually a set of preferences, which can be encoded. So, um, so this idea then that we were trying to understand how the human drug designer was doing it and then try to mimic it was a key part of how we approached the, um, uh, the research. So once we did that, we, we, we hadn't had to sort of uh, remember there was a huge eureka moment uh, at the time. It's probably back in, um, back in, I think it was uh, uh, something like July, 2009. My wife and I were in the, lucky enough to be in the Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo, famous for Lost in Translation, as you, you know, <laughs> Bill Murray. Uh, and so um, we were there, I was giving a, a conference speech at the time and seeing some academics. 
And uh, it was a week actually we got engaged, which was fantastic. Um, nice. And I remember Jeremy sending over the first sort of output results of the calculations uh, we were running at the time. And first we give, it, we give, the, give the algorithm, you know, relatively simple, but you know, quite an interesting challenge where we, uh, I think we took a drug called Tardenafil, which is actually also a PD-5 inhibitor. And we took all the data up until when the lead molecule was discovered, or the journal data on PD-5, et cetera. And, uh, but we also knew from the lead onwards, there was the candidate molecule, and there was another set of papers. So we took a line in the sand. We only knew knowledge up to when that lead was discovered. And then we run the algorithms, and we had to then to prioritize and you know, evolve, et cetera, and, uh, and you know, basically tell us, you know, can you evolve a drug you know, from the lead molecule? And I remember Jeremy sending over the files and the number one compound the algorithm said to make was actually the drug to Denifil. And I thought, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And it was that moment. That was up there probably with the, the, uh, the, the, the 2 a.m. Moonlight story. Don't <laughs> where you the times where, wow. where you knew, really you knew you'd make it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe let's run it again. Let's try other things. So of course we did, you know. But it, it was that kind of initial sort of insight you know, those calculations, which then give us uh, real positive um, reinforcement that actually we could be onto something here. Wow. So, uh, but of course, the calculations are one thing. You've then got to, you know, proactively and prospectively prove it and validate it in the real world. So I was lucky enough to, uh, uh, through a friend of mine, Brian Showcat at UCSF, who introduced me to a great collaborator of his called uh, Brian Roth at the University of North Carolina. Brian is a an amazing scientist who uh, collects nature papers and cell papers like other people might collect <laughs> uh, Pokemons or something. Uh, so he was, um, uh, we managed to then have a collaboration with Brian and uh, we've been collaborating ever since. He's a, I have been stealing people from his lab ever since. We have some fantastic people from UNC now in the company. But what we managed to do then was to set up a large scale collaboration where we then managed to work with Ian Gilbert at Dundee doing a chemistry, the algorithms of designing compounds against a variety of different sort of profiles we were predicting, design, making those compounds and then testing them against these 20 different GPCRs each time to build up a big matrix of data. And then we could compare you know, our predictions, the compounds we were designing against those objectives, against the real experimental pharmacology data. And this then give us a really strong validated data set. So then we... Um, uh, then we published this um, in, in the first version of a technology, which version 1.0. We published in Nature uh, back at the end of 2012 uh, with Brian Roth. And that then really put the, put the line in the sand. You know, this mm. was the first time, and the reason it was published in Nature, it was the first time we were aware of where we could show that algorithms were not just inventing chemical matter directly that we could then patent, but also then we were showing that we could specifically design them against multiple dimensions, you know, against mm. you know, defining an object, defining an objective, at least sort of 20 different uh, points in that objective and then designing compounds to satisfy that uh, because drug design is a, is a multi-dimensional optimization problem. And that then give us the first time, this was the first time we believe we're properly showing how, you know, real validation on uh, of automated drug design and moving it forward. And that then for us now was the, was the start of this whole new field now of AI and drug discovery being applied. Now for an academic, that's the end of the story. You got your nature paper. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you read my mind. Fast forward to today, all that technology, all that research, all of that IP has gone into the company as it is today. I think you said on our call, last time that last year you did your series b was it 43 million dollars right. yes um so yeah tell me about where you are where you guys are right now what you're up to and yeah just i guess a little uh, a few of the highlights yes yeah, sure so uh absolutely so so then we wanted to um really you gotta sort of validate this technology and you know uh Pharma scientists can be a cynical bunch. So you really need to, and of course they should be. These are very expensive projects to run. You're dealing with highly regulated uh, matter. You know, it has to be safe in humans. This is a very serious business. So you need to prove a technology. Um, so we spent the next few years then realizing if we're going to think about how do we you know, get the industry to adopt this new way of working, you really got to prove it on real drug discovery problems. So 
we were lucky enough for my, uh, my days working in, in Big Pharma to have sort of a good contact book where we were managed to do deals almost from day one, actually. And uh, one of our earliest deals with a company called Synovian and their parent company, Dan Nippon Pharma. Uh, we had a fantastic relationship with, with, with those two companies for the first few years and managed to work on pushing the, pushing the algorithm into new frontiers, applying it to high content phenotypic data, um, where we didn't even know the molecular target, but we could show we could design against very complex uh, uh, phenotypes and objectives, very complex biological problems. Showing that with Dynip and Somatoma Pharma, we're working on our first uh, drug candidate molecules and getting the first results where we could go from idea to the actual molecule to enter into IND studies and doing that three times with them and doing it in almost record uh, making um, uh, metrics, uh, basically about 12 months from idea to. Oh, to wow. Candidate. And we started to then to uh, have the opportunity then to really explore. And in fact, the company, actually, the first few years of the company was really about validation. You know, we really wanted to prove this is a way forward. What could, and the only way we could really learn was by running it on real projects. Yeah. So uh, um, it was very important for us to uh, engage with, with working with, with partners, collaborations and clients, et cetera. And it was important because we wanted to validate the technology and see how it works, et cetera. And uh, it was only actually about five years into the, the company, once we really validated it, and once we had actually started to d deliver our own, you know, first preclinical candidate with a wonderful collaboration we set up with Evotech, that Evotech had worked for us for a year. They'd seen it under the hood. They'd seen how we worked day in, day out. And, um, you know, we, we, we talked together and they became our first investor. And um, you were our first sort of CVs A, which is around 15 million uh, euros. And then a, um, just over a year later, then at the end of 2018, uh, we just completed our Series B, uh, which was $26 million. And in fact, we deliberately weren't raising too much because we were actually generating revenues. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, we did it the old fashioned way, didn't you? You sort of bootstrapped for five years we and, did. and we actually started doing some deals. I mean, that's obviously going to increase your valuation. And you know, <laughs> a message out there for entrepreneurs, if you can bootstrap a drug discovery AI company, then uh, I think it's quite a, a lot easier to bootstrap some other companies that claim they need investment <laughs> to build an MVP. Yes, I mean, so yeah, nearly everyone indeed. we talked to said build an either tech company or build a tech or biotech company the way we have is almost unique. Yeah. Um, and and we did it for lots of reasons, actually. We, we did it to, you know, build value for all of the staff and, 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 and people. Yeah. We built it because we wanted to be on proven solid ground, but when we do start to scale, and that mm. was very important. When also, you were hiring then in that initial stage, I mean, you must have been hiring on a, on a, on a mission, right? So you must have some pretty mission-driven people at oh, the start of the company, right? mission-driven people. I'm, I'm yeah. touching wood as we speak. Uh, but we've been very lucky in the whole history of a company, you know, no one's ever resigned yet. I'm sure someone will fall. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we've got a very mission-driven organization. People join the company, believing in what we're trying to do, trying to change the way we can do drug discovery. Mm. And uh, we have been incredibly lucky. We've got a, such a talented team of people. And they were sort of hired out. It's like one of those movies when you, uh, like Ocean's Eleven, when you go around and you... You try to identify, you know, the talented individuals you've always wanted to work with. Yeah, they they were the right one for the job, and um, and I'm, you know, I managed to do it. I, I worked with Jeremy, and he was a uh, and Richard, and they were part of my group when we spun out. I worked with Willem van Horn, and when he was at uh, uh, at Pfizer, I knew what a, a, a talented uh, machine learning and chemoformation expert he was, a very creative scientist. And uh, our CTO, Adrian Schreier, Adrian, I think, was also a sort of employee number three or four in the company. And uh, I spotted Adrian even before he started doing his internship, I think, <laughs> during Cambridge. He, was, uh, he spent a few weeks in Informatica, and I remember meeting him when he was very young. And always struck me what a sharp guy this was. And, you know, many years later, after he finished his postdoc with uh, his PhD with Tom Blundell, and was doing his postdoc, managed to then steal him from Tom again. And, um, and I think Tom has forgiven me. For <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was actually, when you've got a good network, you sort of understand who the up-and-coming talent is. And I yeah. managed to then convince Andy Bell, who at that point had left Pfizer, 
you know, he's one of the world's great drug hunters to come join us and Mark Swindell. What a title. You've said that twice now, drug hunter. Great title. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. I don't think it was in his business card, but um, <laughs> and then also even Mark Swindells, who uh, I knew from Informatica days when we were collaborating on on the large databases and everything. And uh, but Mark had also spent a bit of time with uh, James uh, Dyson's son, Jake Dyson. You know, oh wow! And picked up very different business skills elsewhere. So we managed then to um, be very lucky to pull together. And, and and now the company is over fifty people, and we've got a we've got a fantastic team. But it, Ironically, and every entrepreneur will say this, in a tech company, the quality of the people drives everything. <laughs> so it's, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Yet, and, and conversely, you know, hiring's arguably the most difficult thing to do. It is, it is the most difficult thing. And you have to think very carefully about bringing on the right people. And we've been very lucky to do it. We've got a huge number of people now, which every one of them I'm, I'm proud of. And we think very carefully about who we hire. Mm. Because we want people who are, you know, sharp, but also creative, who are who are very mission orientated, and so it's been a it's been a joy actually to uh, you know everyone's bought into it. It's been the first few years of a company are probably the hardest. As you know, building a small company, living on revenues, growing it, getting deals, etc. Yeah. But uh, once we feel we've proven it and got the data uh, and the first sort of proof of concepts under our uh, belt, then it allowed us then to really take off and. This year alone, uh, we signed a you know large number of deals moving forward. Uh, notable ones was a, a deal with Celgene, um, which we signed in May. That was twenty five million dollars up front, and you know some very significant bio bucks uh, potentially downstream in more in downstream milestones and royalties, for example. Altogether, we think that might be the largest AI deal signed so far, um, and so it's given us then you know huge confidence now to. Uh, that how we, how we grew the company was the right way to grow it. And also that of, um, we, we now believe there's a huge momentum in the business. And now the real challenge for us is, uh, is now being a scale-up, you know, and how then do we uh, think about sort of dominating this new industry that's emerging. And I'll tell you what, I thoroughly look forward to hearing how you go about doing that. And I'm, sh- I'm sure you guys will. But Andrew, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, you know, I say every week that I learn a lot, right? But, but I think finally the, the black box has been lifted off drug discovery for me now that I, I, I actually have a, a very good understanding of what it actually means and how the technology comes into play. And I, I really understand those companies now. So thank you for educating me and I'm sure educating our listeners as well. The way that we end these podcasts is I hand back over to you quickly just to kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the company and to close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. So by all means, take it away. My name is Andrew Hopkins. I'm the CEO and founder of Accentia, uh, the first company to apply AI to the design of new drugs. And what I'd ask the audience is, we're certainly hiring. So uh, please send us your CVs. (laughs) (laughs) But um, also I would say, we're really interested in also finding academics and people with interesting ideas, you know, what we're interested in doing is, 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 is connecting and seeing if we can actually see if there's new concepts for projects where we can actually bring together emerging new biology and think of as an opportunity actually to apply the latest drug design technology to that. Amazing. We've got listeners in 74 different countries, I counted this morning. So I'm sure you might get a CV or two after that ask. <laughs> so Andrew, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you or the company? Do you have a sort of generic inbox or a LinkedIn or anything that people can add? I think it's uh, contact at accentia.co.uk and cool. uh, people can drop us a line there. Hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.